Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, thank you, worship team, and thank you, choir, for leading us this morning. Uh, if you were not here earlier when I introduced myself, I am Bruce Drugsma. I am the senior pastor here. We are glad uh, that you are joining us this morning. And uh, we are going to be continuing our series in Malachi this morning. Uh, we are on week three, but we're only on chapter two. So if you have your Bible uh, with you, whether that's on your phone or uh, physically with you, I would encourage you to, to open your Bible. We're going to be in chapter two, and we're going through this series called Great Questions. In Malachi, if you read the entire book, there's all these questions, these questions that are directed toward God, these questions of, you know, God, what does it mean to love you? What does it mean to honor you? And that's kind of where we were the first couple of weeks. And this week we're gonna be looking at what does it mean to seek you? And these, these questions keep coming up. And, and the people of Israel through the priests are protesting, God, we have done that. How have we dishonored you? How have we not loved you? And all these protestations from the people turn out to be pretty pathetic and pretty pitiful. And we're gonna continue that theme this morning as we look at chapter two, but uh, we're gonna be talking about what does God seek? What does God seek? And another way, what does God desire from us as followers of him? And last night, my wife and I watched a movie and uh, I'm a fan of, of uh, a website that exists that I would encourage you to, to check out. And over the last week, it was not only National Day of Prayer, um, but for other people, it was also Star Wars Day. Um, so that was another significant holiday that happened on May the 4th. And uh, if you're not aware of that, May the 4th be with you is kind of where that comes from. So Star Wars Day. And if you remember the uh, first Star Wars that came out, it, A New Hope, and there's the scene where the, the Death Star is coming to blow up the rebel base, which is on a moon behind a planet. And the, the, the Death Star has to come around the planet to to shoot and destroy the moon. And this is the, the big, you know, plot point that, that everything culminates to. And there's a website out there called howitshouldhaveended.com. And if you go to that website, you can see their interpretation of how that movie should have ended. And how it should have ended in their mind is if you have a giant planet-destroying Death Star, you don't wait to go around the planet to blow up the other planet, you just blow them both up. And, and the movie ends and, and everybody dies and that would have been, the, that's how it should have ended, dot com. And, you know, it's, it's a fair point. And I think there's a lot of movies that we could make that argument. There's a lot of TV shows that the whole plot point centers around bad communication. If the husband and wife would just talk to each other, there wouldn't be a movie. <laughs> if, if, the people just used the resources at their disposal, there wouldn't be a movie. Because sometimes what we actually desire in real life, what is good for us, what we should be seeking in a healthy relationship, isn't entertaining on television. We have a separate desire. I don't want to watch a well-adjusted couple figure out life through calm conversation. I don't want to watch you know, diplomatic discourse where it works when I want an action-adventure movie. I want it to fail. I want the drama. And, and what I desire and what is healthy and good in real life and what I desire in entertainment are often at odds. And I think the same is true with us and God. Not that, not that God is watching us for entertainment, and this is where my analogy does break down, but what we think is best 
and what we think we desire and what we think is the best is often different than what God actually desires and because God knows what's the best. And so we're gonna be looking at this morning, asking the question, what does God seek? What does God desire? What makes um, his desires become reality? How do we seek the same thing that God seeks? And so this morning we're gonna be asking that question through Malachi of what does God seek? And so we'll be looking at this passage and I wanna read uh, from Malachi chapter two, the verse two verses. And now you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not resolved to, be, uh, to honor me. And to be clear, while the passage feels like it's addressed just to the priests, uh, it's not just addressed to the priests. It's also addressed to us. Therefore, uh, it was addressed to the priests and therefore to the community underneath them. To them as leaders, but they are living out what the community believed. And so we can take this same, the same stuff that is gonna come in this chapter that is directed toward the priests and the people of Israel, and we can ask the same questions of ourselves. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. And so it is directed at the priests as the spiritual leaders of the community. And there is an idea in scripture that those in spiritual leadership do bear a higher responsibility towards what happens in the community, but it is also directed at the community. It's, a, it's directed at the community of, of Israel underneath the priests who go along with it, who follow along. So they bear the brunt of God's questioning because they are the spiritual leaders of the community, but we know that the rest of the community was following their lead. And we get a flavor in these verses of where they were going, and it should cause us to ask the same questions of ourselves. And so this morning we'll be looking at this passage and asking what does God seek? What is God looking for? And the first thing that we see is that God desires obedience. And obedience is not a fun topic. Obedience is not one that, boy, I got up this morning just really, really hopeful to talk about obedience. In fact, I got up this morning, I was talking to uh, Joel and Kara earlier. I got up this morning actually thinking I was doing a, a, a different sermon and got here this morning and looked at my notes and went, oh no, that one's in two weeks. So I don't know if my brain was trying to get me to stop thinking about obedience and I just you know, was trying to like push that down. Um, I also had a reminder this morning, I, I, did, I took my motorcycle in. It's a nice day, finally, I can ride my motorcycle. Rode it in this morning and then read that obedience is not optional. As we talk about God desiring obedience, obedience is not optional. Obedience isn't just something we do when we want to follow the rules. Obedience isn't something we do when the rules make sense and we don't get to pick and choose what rules we follow. And that was convicting to me personally because my tabs are expired and I knew that. And I rode my motorcycle anyway. So obedience, I stand up here going, this is clearly something that I don't wanna deal with, but we need to. We need to address obedience, it's, 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 in the, it's in scripture. Obedience is important and it's not a fun word. Malachi 2 verses three through nine, because of you I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace and I gave them to him 
This called for reverence and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. And, and I'm gonna pause there because he's addressing Levi who would be the forefather of all of the priests. The priests all had to be Levites, descended from Levi. And he's saying, hey, Levi started, this is what it was supposed to be like. And then he shifts in verse seven, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth, but you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty, so I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. And this passage takes a little bit of understanding of what was going on in the Old Testament uh, to really be in the passage, to fully understand it and not get distracted by words like dung being spread on our faces. And it start, uh, the first thing we need to see, because I will rebuke, because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. Because the role of blessing and curses being applied to descendants is common in the Old Testament, especially in common in scripture, and we don't like that. We don't like the idea in our independent society, in our modern society, of having any impact on us because of our parents or any impact on our kids because of us. We don't like the idea of generational blessing and generational cursing. We don't like it. It's not fair. It's not fair that I have to bear some of the consequences of things my parents did. But we do know that in some basic ways, this is true. Even though we don't like it, even in our modern society, we know that there are ripple effects, consequences. We talk about it where, you know, people will talk about, well, my parents struggled with, with this, and so I know I need to be aware of that. We see these ripple effects carry through but this is more than just a nature versus nurture thing. And in a common culture, uh, common phrase we hear in our culture, especially when people wanna do something they know isn't good or appropriate or is against the law and they don't think it should be, the common refrain is, but it's not hurting anyone. But it's not hurting anyone that I go speeding through town. It's not hurting anyone that I engage in, in these harmful activities. It's not hurting anyone until it does. Right? Until, until we get in that car accident or, you know, I could argue that my tabs being expired isn't hurting anyone until nobody pays their tabs and our word, roads are even worse than they are now. Then it's hurting a lot of people. But it's not hurting anyone that my tabs are expired. It's not hurting anyone. All we do affects those around us and scripture shows us this. So for the priests, the leaders of the community, this is a reminder that their sin will have consequences beyond their lives. It affects their community and it affects their children. And for the Israelites, this was more than just the ripple effects of sin. This was something that was carried forward. In the second commandment in Exodus 20, we see this. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And this is the part that we like to skip. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But if we skip that first part, we also have to skip the next part, right? but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And notice the contrast. 
Punishment for a few generations, blessing for a thousand generations. There is a greater blessing in repentance. We, we need to be reminded of what repentance brings. It brings blessing, and that blessing can overcome any of that history. God can overcome that history in your family of, of disrespect, of anger. God can overcome that that history in your family of alcohol abuse or drug abuse. God can overcome that, but it requires us going to him in repentance and honoring him. And look at the blessing going forward. But along with the effects of those around us, this passage speaks about smearing dung from the festivals, and that's really gross. And it's another one that we just don't know what to do with, but I want to put that in more of a historical context and remember that where we're at in Israel's history, they had, they had worshiped at the temple, but the worship at the temple had become commonplace. It had become uh, prescriptive. It had become something that they went and checked the box. And God said, that's never what it was supposed to be about. And because of their disobedience, because of their continual rebellion, God sends them away into captivity. And, and ultimately, the temple gets destroyed. It gets torn down. And they don't have the temple. And without the temple, they can't do worship. They can't bring the sacrifices. They can do worship. They can't bring sacrifices in worship because that, that required the temple. And so for a time, they didn't have temple available to them. And they didn't have sacrifices. And along with that came, they could do some festivals, but they couldn't do significant festivals, specifically like the Day of Atonement, the one day where they had to bring a sacrifice for their community sin. They couldn't do that without the temple. It required the temple. And those sacrifices, both for sin and for the Day of Atonement, had some special regulations that you, you wouldn't sacrifice the entire animal. You'd remove parts of it, the entrails and the hide. And you'd take that outside of the camp and you would burn that outside of the camp. And so the symbolism here is God is saying, hey, you, you're now back. You have temple again. You now can physically do these things. But just like before, you've walked away and they've become rote. They've become things you just do. And it's just as pointless as when you weren't doing it. And so this, this idea that you need, to, um, you need to have authenticity in this. This obedience isn't just about the action, it's about the heart. And that if you're not gonna put your heart into this obedience, you might as well take that dung from outside and smear it on your faces because that's how defiled you are when your heart isn't there in the obedience. Leviticus 16, 27, the bull and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and intestines are to be burned up. So what is this passage getting at in Malachi specifically and how does it connect with Leviticus? The consequences for sin are significant and uncomfortable. Not because God is a God of revenge. And not because God is a God of shame, but because God desires obedience for our good. Why do the sacrifices if our heart isn't in it? Then it's benefiting nobody. But look at the promises at the end of this section that are for our good. God wants the covenant to continue in verse four. God wants a covenant of life and peace in verse five. God wants a life of integrity in verse six. God wants growth with our relationship with him in verse seven and a relationship that brings people toward God rather than causing others to stumble in verse eight. And so we see the intent finally in verse nine. 
So I've caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. The people of Israel were taking obedience of the law and treating it as something that could be nuanced and loopholed. If that's the law, then all, if, I, if all I have to do to make atonement for my sin is offer a sacrifice, then I'm gonna go out and sin however much I want because I have plenty of goats. And that was not the intent. That was never the intent. And yet, don't we sometimes do the same thing, that obedience is one of those things we go, look, God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy, and that's true. Therefore, who cares? I'll, I'll, I'll speed on my motorcycle with expired tabs because grace... And that's never the intent. Our heart needs to be there. Obedience is a matter of the heart, not just the action. So God desires obedience, obedience from the heart. But God also desires faithfulness. And faithfulness here in this passage can be broken up into three parts, and I'm gonna do that. But that's not exhaustive. That's not the only places we can be faithful. I'm not, again, we just talked about how the law is not something that was ever supposed to be seen as something that we can, okay, it's those three things, therefore anything else, I don't have to be faithful in, and loopholes, that, that's never how it was supposed to be seen. And so this is not an exhaustive list, and faithfulness here, another word for what God desires in faithfulness is integrity, integrity across the board. Integrity at school, integrity at work, integrity at home, integrity online, integrity uh, with our friends, integrity in public, integrity everywhere. That's faithfulness. So when we talk about God desiring faithfulness and then these, these areas are listed, it's not like the, everything else is, is okay. God desires faithfulness. Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty." Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. And as I said, we're going to break this into three parts and I could break it up into faithfulness in relationships and faithfulness in worship and faithfulness in marriage. And those are kind of the three areas that he's going to focus on here. And the first one is faithfulness in relationships. And he starts with this idea, did not one God create us? And that is true of Everybody. That's, that's true of the person who cuts you off in traffic. That's true of the person who cheats from your paper in school and then blames you for cheating off of them. That's, that's true of the person who besmirches your character at work. I'm not excusing those behaviors, but they are still created in God's image. Did not one God create us? So this call to faithfulness goes beyond just faithfulness in marriage and faithfulness in relationships with other believers and faithfulness in, in relationships in our family. This call is for faithfulness in relationships, period. 
Because all people carry the image of God. They deserve our love and respect for that reason. And again, that doesn't excuse all the behaviors out there, and I don't have time to list all of the ungodly behaviors. I think we know them, and we commit some of them ourselves to each other. And we want mercy when we do it. Oh, mitigating circumstances, I was angry. Um, But we're called to be faithful in our relationships because one God created us all. And this both unites us in relationships with those in the church and with those outside of the church because it also moves on and goes, it is not one God our Father. So we owe a level of of relationship faithfulness to everybody because they bear, bear the image of God, but even more so in our church where we have one Father. That's a choice. I have God as my creator, but I can choose to not respect God as my Father. And so it's talking a little deeper here about inside the faithful community in Israel and Malachi and in the church here today. And I mean the church with the big C, not Watertown Evangelical Free Church exclusively, though I hope we are faithful to each other here as well. But are we faithful to other believers wherever we encounter them? And it's one of those things that I know that uh, it, it becomes this common bond when, when, you're, when you, you're out someplace and you realize that somebody else has something in common with you, especially something so personal as spiritual relationship with God. As soon as we find that connecting point, we, we find that special level of connection and unity with that person. And we're called to do that. And we could, we, we can and should ask ourselves, where have we in the church treated those with us in Christian fellowship unfaithfully? Where have we spoken ill of them behind their back because they didn't quite perfectly align with us? Or where have we spoken ill of people who aren't walking with the Lord, but we've called into question their integrity as people um, or treated them as, shall we say, how Disney treats their stepchildren? In, In any Disney movie, the stepchildren are always treated poorly. That's kind of the major plot point for uh, like Snow White, right? Is it Snow White? No, one of them. Anyway, there, there's a lot of them. You get what I'm saying. They're, they're treated as, as, as second-class citizens. And where do we treat others as second-class citizens? Because we're like, well, they, they're not really as good as me because they don't follow Jesus. And therefore I can get away with that in my relationship with them because they're not really, they're still created in God's image. Where have we been unfaithful with other believers where they don't perfectly align with us? inside our local church and with our big C church. We are called to unity in relationships. Our call to faithfulness in relationships with other believers and the world is anchored in our view of God's relationship with his church and his creation. But we're called beyond that to faithfulness in worship. This, that faithfulness in relationships impacts our relationship with God and therefore impacts our worship. If we are unfaithful in relationships, it will impact our ability to worship our creator. And don't get distracted in verses 11 and 12 with the conversation about an unfaithfulness or marriage outside of the community of God. Now, that's a significant thing, and I don't want to dismiss it either, but but understand that as you read the Old Testament, oftentimes that unfaithfulness in marriage is equated with unfaithfulness to God in Israel. The entire book of Hosea builds on that argument. That Hosea is this, is this guy who, ha, who is called to marry an unfaithful wife 
And he continually has to go and redeem her from her unfaithfulness. And the analogy there is that God is the faithful husband and Israel is the unfaithful wife who keeps on going after foreign gods and after foreign deities and and being unfaithful in worship. And it affects how we encounter God. And so don't think it's just a marriage conversation. It's talking about worship. Israel's faithfulness or lack thereof to God was common. And the penalty for unfaithfulness in worship to their God is a breakdown in their relationship with God. And the same is true for us. When we are unfaithful in our relationships, when we are unfaithful in our obedience, it impacts our ability to encounter God in worship. There are times where I think we come into moments of worship or moments of prayer and we feel like it's bouncing off the ceiling and we should be questioning, is there something that I have done to be unfaithful to God that's causing this hindrance? Where have I been unfaithful to God and where have I prioritized money or power or position or, or whatever popularity over my relationship with God and that will affect my ability to worship? And Jeremiah has the same criticism of Israel in Jeremiah 7, verses 9 and 10. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe? Safe to do these detestable things? So the question for us is, where have we been unfaithful to God in our lifestyle and assume that it won't affect our relationship with God in worship? And I could take the same things from Jeremiah and we could apply them to ourselves. Where do we steal and murder remembering that that stealing isn't just robbing a bank at gunpoint? You know, unfaithfully or or, or unethically gaining wealth. Um, Stealing somebody else's uh, benefits. You know, taking credit for somebody else's work. These are all stealing. And, And Jesus goes so far with murder to talk about hating somebody as murder. So where do we steal? Where do we murder? Where do we commit adultery? And again, Jesus expands that definition too to say wherever we have looked lustfully at another person, that's, that's, that's adultery. And perjury, where have we lied? Where have we gone against our word? Where have we known the truth and have said something else to benefit or protect somebody? Even if we think we're doing the right thing, there are times where we go, no, 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 I need to protect my name, the, the good name of my company, the good, you know, the good name of my sports team. And so, and so we perjury. Where do we do those things and burn incense to Baal and fall down and worship at false gods of power and wealth and popularity? And finally, there is faithfulness in marriage when we talk about God desiring faithfulness and verse 13 shows the consequences. Our unwillingness to come to God in confession leads to a breakdown in our worship and he connects it to those who are unfaithful in marriage specifically. There is a call here specifically to marriage. Our faithfulness to God is tied to our faithfulness to others outside of marriage and inside of marriage. And so don't think that this only applies to people who are married. It also applies to anybody who may become married. It also applies to anybody who has thought about marriage. It applies to all of us to be faithful in our marriage. So so once again, the faithfulness of marriage is connected to our relationship with God. And, And the argument that Malachi builds, that God builds through Malachi could go something like this. Your spouse deserves your love, respect, and faithfulness for these reasons. Number one, they are children of God, just like everybody else. And number two, they should be followers of God with you and and they should be calling God Father and therefore worthy of it as well. 
They should be in corporate worship with you. And you are both in a covenant with each other, but more importantly, that covenant is with God. And these things demand faithfulness. And where does your marriage need some special focus? For husbands and wives, where have we shed, as the passage says, shed tears on the altar? Where we come in in worship and prayer and we go, God, this is broken, and yet we're not willing to lift a finger to do anything because it's not my fault. It's never my fault. It's my spouse's fault. Where have we shed those tears on the altar? But we neglect the wife of our youth. Or where do we shed tears on the altar but forget that our spouse is our partner, not our enemy? Finally, this morning, God desires justice. And justice is a word that gets thrown around a lot today. And I think oftentimes we miss the godly definition of justice. I said early on in this series, and I'll say it numerous times, that God's definition is what hinges on these questions. If we use our own definition and not God's, we will struggle to understand these questions because we are looking for God's definition of justice, a biblical definition. Malachi 2, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have, you, how have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? And so even for those whose complaint is valid, God is pointing out that your, your, your criticism of me as God pursuing godly justice is because what you want is not what I want. And oftentimes what we want in justice is really revenge. And revenge and justice are very different things. We want revenge oftentimes. And the people of Israel want revenge. We see somebody succeed through ill-gotten means and we want them to fail. And we, we can hide behind this premise of what I want is justice. And really what I want, I, what I think I want, is I want them to fail. I want them to fail. And time after time, study after study shows that revenge does not even help, even in extreme cases like murder. In one study, only 2.5% of victims' families that saw the perpetrator executed for their crime felt any measure of closure. Of all the people who were executed for their crimes, when they went and interviewed the family of the victim after the fact and said, do you feel better? 2.5% said yes, the rest said no. They got revenge, didn't feel any better. And a, and, and a therapist who works with victims' families stated, taking a life doesn't fill that void, but it's generally not until after the execution that families realize this. Because they have it in their heart like we all do, this desire for revenge. And once we have it, it doesn't fill that void because that is not justice. Justice is not revenge. Godly justice is not revenge. Romans 12, 19 through 21. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this idea is not just in the New Testament. This idea from Romans has its roots in the Old Testament, and the, the readers of Malachi would have seen it. And I would encourage you to take some time to explore the justice setup in the Old Testament 
And as we did last week when we talked about slavery, we looked at the verses immediately following the Ten Commandments, and we're going to pick it up right there again. If people quarry, if people quarrel, and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist, and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with a staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. Because biblical justice is fiercely proportional. Exodus does and Leviticus do talk about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we think that that was prescriptive, that that was the minimum and that was the maximum. And if you read in other places in Leviticus and Exodus, you see that their desire, like it was in that passage I read, was for restoration and restitution. And so if I injure you in such a way that you can't go to work, it is on me to provide for you and your family until you can work again. And so if through my anger, I chop off your hand permanently, I'm on the hook for your family indefinitely. And chopping off my own hand only damages that second family because biblical justice is fiercely relational and fiercely proportional. And so the people in Malachi are sitting there demanding revenge and justice and they're seeing that God is not moving in the time frame they want and they go, see, God isn't a God of justice. And God says, no, I am a God of justice. It's just not in the way that you think it should be, nor is it in the timeline that you desire. And the people condemning God's patient justice are revealed for who they really are, revenge seekers. But again, when we put ourselves in the perpetrator's shoes, we want mercy. We want God to be a God of patience. We want God to, to give us grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we demand it of other people as well, even though we are unwilling to extend it. But that's biblical justice. Grace and mercy are tied in. And we can't remove them as much as we might want to. And so I'm gonna pray and then, and then we're, gonna, we're gonna move into a time of communion. So would you pray with me? God, you desire obedience. God, you desire faithfulness. God, you desire justice. And Lord, we, we often fall short of your standards. God, we are not obedient people. And God, we are not faithful people. And God, we are not justice people. So often we fall short. And so God, we come to you this morning and as we enter into this time of communion, God, we acknowledge, Lord, that you are at work, that you are a God of justice, but Lord, that justice looks like Jesus on the cross. And so we thank you for that justice. God, we thank you for that mercy and that grace. And we pray this in your name, amen. And we, like I said, we are gonna move into a time of communion and I think this is an appropriate time to do it. And I'm gonna ask the servers to come forward as I share just a, briefly that, we need to remember that God is a God of obedience. God is a God of faithfulness even when we are unfaithful to him. And God is a God of justice even when we don't deserve it. And so as we come into communion, one of the things that, that the Bible talks about is to not take communion if we are in conflict with somebody else that we need to make that right. And so that's our challenge this morning is that if there's a spot where you have been relationally unfaithful that you need to make right before you take these elements, please do that. If there's a spot where we need to confess our unfaithfulness 
to God or we need to confess our unfaithfulness or our desire for revenge over justice, we need to confess that. And we need to remember that godly justice looks like Jesus on the cross for our sins when we didn't deserve that kind of grace and mercy. And that's what we celebrate here this morning in communion. And with this in mind, a reminder that our communion table is open to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. So whether this is your first time here or you've been here uh, your entire life, feel free to join us this morning in communion. If, however, you are not sure where you stand or you do not feel you are in a position to take communion this morning, please simply let the elements pass. There, there is no judgment, um, but we believe firmly that communion is for all believers, but believers only. And so it is in that attitude that we will take communion. And, and finally, please hold on to the elements and we will take them together. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives instructions for how we are to take communion. And he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Lord, as we take the bread this morning, we remember your sacrifice on our behalf. God, we are reminded that you gave your body. Lord, that you were broken on our behalf. And so, Lord, we confess that we need that restoration, God, that we need you to pay the penalty for our sins. And so, Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice on our behalf. In your name, amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And as we end communion this morning, let's end by saying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a couple of quick announcements before you leave this morning. As we do every Sunday when we take communion, we do take our Benevolence Fund offering, which goes to those in our community and in our church who are in need. Uh, I would encourage you to give to that as you feel led. Um, a reminder that next week uh, is Mother's Day. So for those of you that forgot, um, it's Mother's Day next week. Maybe take care of that. Uh, and we will have a panel uh, up on stage in, in lieu of a normal sermon. We're going to have a panel of mothers and asking some questions moms ask. So look forward to that. Um, at the back, we do have a, uh, the letter that was sent out. Again, if you did not get it in your email and would like a, or would like a hard copy, uh, we have them back there in reference to some budget items before our annual meeting. Um, while you're there picking up the letter, if you could also check in, uh, we are trying to make sure we have everybody's correct contact information. So there's a, a document there. If you could just find your name, verify we have all the correct information, spelling, name, email, all that would be super helpful uh, and, and help us be updated. 
And just a reminder again, as we talk about giving for the next year, and as, we, as you saw in the letter, um, we do need people to, in an act of worship and obedience, give to the church. It does fund the ministry here, so, but we ask that you do that as the Lord leads, and we ask that you do that in a heart of worship. And so I wanna end this morning with uh, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is our reminder this morning as we took communion. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.